Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 
Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech entitled The Other America at Grove Point High School just months before his death. He said, quote, there are two Americas. One America is beautiful. In this America, millions of people have the milk of prosperity and the honey of equality flowing before them. This America is the habitat of millions of people who have food and material necessities for their bodies, culture and education for their minds, freedom and human dignity for their spirits. In this America, children grow up in the sunlight of opportunity. But there is another America. This other America has a daily ugliness about it that transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. He then went on to cite the inadequate, overcrowded, and fundamentally unequal schools. He described the high rates of unemployment in the black community. The official rate of black unemployment at that time was about 9%. But he noted that figure didn't include all those who had given up all hope looking for work. He said the unemployment figures, quote, do not take into consideration thousands of people who have given up, who have lost motivation for work, the thousands of people who have had so many doors closed in their faces that they feel defeated, and they no longer go out to look for jobs. The thousands who have come to feel that life is a long and desolate corridor with no exit signs. The vast majority of Negroes in America find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. So I think tonight as we are gathered in the name of peace and social justice, we owe it to ourselves and to Dr. King to answer the question, what really has changed? Hmm. Hmm. Most people of all colors will tell you so much has changed. They'll say, just look at all the black lawyers and black doctors. We're free now to sit at any lunch counter, eat in any restaurant. Just look at Barack Obama. Just look at Oprah Winfrey. Just look at Colin Powell. And it wasn't too long ago that, you know, people were talking about a certain black Republican candidate for president. And saying, just look at him. Just look at him go. <laughs> Our nation has come a long way. But then there's the familiar line, but of course we still have a long way to go. This kind of talk and this familiar line implies that we're on the right path. That if we just keep plodding along, keep plodding ahead, sooner or later we'll reach that promised land. But is that right? Are we truly on the right path, the same path Dr. King? So many other racial justice advocates were traveling, or could it be that we have made a tragic U-turn? Could we be headed right back to where we began? Most of the indicators of black well-being that Dr. King cited in his other American speech are actually worse today than they were back then. Worse. Today, only 35% of black boys nationwide graduate from high school. The figure is 26% in New York City. Only 12% of black fourth grade boys are proficient in reading. And shocking numbers are still not proficient in high school. Today, as in 1968, the reason for these shocking figures is not that black children lack native intelligence or a desire to learn. It's that their schools are so fundamentally inadequate and that hopelessness and despair for their families and their lives.
King complained that the official black unemployment rate in 1968 was 9%, with rates much higher if you count all those looking for work. Well, today, in cities across America, more than 50% of black men are jobless. 50%. Last year, the Center for Economic Development at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee issued a report showing that 53.3% of working-age black men in Milwaukee or jobless, the highest ever recorded. In Detroit, the figure was 60%. Black unemployment rates have been breaking records nationwide with scarcely any notice. Last December, data released by the Community Service Society showed that only 25% of young black men in New York City actually have a job. Now, I wish I could say that's the worst of it, but it's not. During the past 30 years, a vast new system of racial and social control has emerged from the ashes of slavery and Jim Crow. A system of mass incarceration that no doubt has Dr. King turning in his grave. The systematic mass incarceration of poor people of color in the United States has emerged as a new caste system. One that shuttles our children from decrepit, underfunded schools to brand new high-tech prisons. It is a system that locks poor people, overwhelmingly poor folks of color, into a permanent second-class status nearly as effectively as earlier systems of racial and social control once did. It is, in my view, the moral equivalent of Jim Crow. Now, I am always eager to admit that there was a time when I rejected this kind of talk. I rejected it out of hand. I thought people who made comparisons between slavery and mass incarceration, or Jim Crow and mass incarceration, were engaging in exaggerations and distortions. In fact, there was a time when I thought that people who made those kinds of claims and those kinds of comparisons were actually doing more harm than good to efforts to reform our criminal justice system and achieve greater racial equality in the United States. But what a difference a decade makes. For after years of working as a civil rights lawyer and advocate, representing victims of racial profiling and police brutality, and investigating patterns of drug law enforcement in poor communities of color, and attempting to assist people who have been released from prison, re-enter into a society that had never shown much use for them in the first place, I had a series of experiences that began what I now call my awakening. I began to awaken to a racial reality that is just so obvious to me now that what seems odd in retrospect is that I could have been blind to it for so long. As I write in the introduction to my book, what has changed since the collapse of Jim Crow has less to do with the basic structure of our society than the language we use to justify it. In the era of colorblindness, it is no longer socially permissible to use race explicitly as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. So we don't. Rather than rely on race, we use our criminal justice system to label people of color criminals and then engage in all the practices that we supposedly left behind. Today, it is perfectly legal to discriminate against criminals in nearly all the ways in which it was once legal to discriminate against African Americans. Once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination, employment discrimination, 
housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, exclusion from jury service, suddenly legal. As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America, we have merely redesigned it. that I uncovered in the course of my work and research. There are more African-American adults under correctional control today, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. As of 2004, more black men were disenfranchised than in 1870. The year the 15th Amendment was ratified, prohibiting laws that explicitly deny the right to vote on the basis of race. Now, of course, during the Jim Crow era, poll taxes and literacy tests operated to keep black folks from the polls. Well, today, felon disenfranchisement laws accomplish in many states what poll taxes and literacy tests ultimately could not. In some major urban areas, more than half of working-age African-American men have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. In some places, in some cities, like Detroit, like Chicago, Baltimore, Philadelphia, the stats are far worse. A study that was released in Chicago, for example, revealed that if you take into account prisoners, you actually count prisoners as people. And of course, prisoners are excluded from poverty statistics and unemployment data, thus masking the severity of racial inequality in the United States. But if you actually count prisoners as people in the Chicago area, nearly 80% of working-age African-American men have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. These men are part of a growing undercast, not class, caste, a group of people defined largely by race, relegated to a permanent second-class status by law. Now, I find that when I tell people today that I now believe that mass incarceration is like a new Jim Crow, a new caste-like system, people react with shock and disbelief. They say, how can you say that? How can you say that? Our criminal justice system isn't a system of racial control, it's a system of crime control. Black folks would just stop running around committing so many crimes, they would never worry about being locked up, stripped of their basic civil and human rights. But therein lies the greatest myth about mass incarceration. Namely, it has been driven by crime and crime rates. It's not true. It's not true. Our prison population in the United States quintupled in a 30-year period of time. Not doubled, not quintupled in 30 years. We now have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of even highly repressive regimes like Russia or China or Iran. But during that 30-year period of time, crime rates fluctuated. Went up, went down, went back up again, went down again. Today, as bad as crime rates are in some cities, like Detroit, Chicago. Crime rates nationally are at historical lows, but incarceration rates, 
especially black incarceration rates, have consistently soared. Most criminologists and sociologists today will acknowledge that crime rates and incarceration rates have moved independently of one another. Incarceration rates, especially black incarceration rates, have soared regardless of whether crime is going up or going down in any given community or the nation as a whole. So what explains the sudden explosion, incarceration, the birth of a penal system unprecedented in world history, if not crime and crime rates? Well, the answer is the war on drugs and the get-tough movement, the wave of punitiveness that washed over the United States. It was not so much changes in crime or crime rates, but the way we responded to those we viewed as criminals that changed. We ended the war on poverty and declared the war on drugs. A wave of punitiveness washed over the United States as we defunded drug treatment, defunded education, and went on a prison building bill unlike anything the world has ever seen. And so here we are. A few decades later, millions of people cycling in and out of our prisons and jails, overwhelmingly for nonviolent and drug-related offenses. And you say, well, if you look at the state prison data, about half of the state prison population is comprised of violent offenders, so doesn't that mean that we're really getting tough on the violent offenders? That's what this is really all about? No. Violent offenders comprise a large share of our nation's prison population because violent offenders get longer sentences on average than non-violent offenders. So they comprise a much larger share of the prison population. If you take a snapshot of the prison population at any moment, the non-violent offenders were cycling in out of our prison system. Today, there are about 7.6 million people currently under correctional control, in prison or jail, on probation or parole. Less than 2 million of those are actually in prison. The rest, on probation, on parole, in jail. Overwhelmingly for nonviolent and relatively minor offenses. For example, in the 1990s, the period of the greatest escalation of our drug war, nearly 80% of the increase in drug arrests were for marijuana possession. Most Americans violate drug laws in their lifetime, most do. But the enemy in this war has been racially defined. Not by accident, this drug war has been waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color, even though studies have consistently shown now for decades that contrary to popular belief, people of color are no more likely to use or sell illegal drugs than whites, or sell. Now that defies our basic racial stereotypes about who a drug dealer is. If you're honest with yourself, you imagine a drug dealer, who do you see? If you're like most Americans, you picture some black kids down the street corner with a pants back and down. And plenty of drug dealing happens in the hood, but it happens everywhere else in America as well. It does. The white kid who's living in rural 
Michigan or little Kansas doesn't drive to the hood to get his marijuana or his meth or his ecstasy or his cocaine. No. He gets it most likely from someone of his own race down the road. Drug markets, much like American society, generally are fairly segregated by race. Black folks tend to sell black folks, Latinos to each other, whites to each other. Drug markets are even segregated by class. University students sell to each other. Drug dealing and drug use happens in all communities, of all colors. But those who do time for drug crime in the United States are overwhelmingly black and brown. Some states, 80 to 90 percent of all drug offenders sent to prison have been one race, African American. Now it is the drug war and this get-tough approach to dealing with relatively minor, non-violent offenses that has led to the millions of people cycling in and out. More than 40 million people in the United States recently been granted criminals and felons. It's estimated that over 70 million people in the United States have criminals. But of course, being swept into the system, being stopped, frisked, searched, targeted, is only the beginning. Because once you've been swept in and branded, you're ushered into a parallel social universe where the basic civil human rights that apply to the rest of no longer apply to you. For the rest of your life, you may be forced to check that box on employment applications asking that dreaded question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And it doesn't matter if that felony happened a few weeks ago, a few months ago, a few years ago, or 45 years ago. The rest of your life, you've got to check that box on employment applications knowing I'll just sky high your application's going straight to the trash. Hundreds of professional licenses are off limits to people convicted of felonies. In my state, in Ohio, you can't even get a license to be a barber if you've been convicted of a felony. Many people say, well, don't make excuses for these folks. They get out of prison, you know, they can get a job if they really wanted to. They can get a job at McDonald's. Well, getting a job at McDonald's is no easy feat. You have a felony record. Housing discrimination, perfectly legal. Public housing projects, as well as private landlords, free to turn you away because of criminal record. Where are people expected to sleep? Discrimination and public benefits, perfectly legal. Some states are even denied food stamps if you've been once caught with drugs and Convicted of a drug felony. Fortunately, that's not the case here in Michigan. But in many states around the country, thousands of people can't even get food stamps to survive because they were once caught with drugs. What are folks released from prison expected to do? Can't get a job, barred from housing, even food stamps might be off limits to you. Well, apparently what we expect them to do is to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees, fines, court costs accumulated back child support, which continues to accrue while you're in prison, and in a growing number of states, you're actually expected to pay back the cost of your imprisonment. And paying back all these fees by the court costs may be a condition of your probation or parole. And then get this, if you're one of the lucky few who actually manages to find a job once you're released from prison, up to 100% of your wages can be garnished. 100%. To pay back all those fees, fines, court costs, accumulated back child support. What do we expect people released from prison to do? 
And perhaps the better question is, what is this system seeing designed to do? Seems designed to send folks right back to prison, which is yep. what in fact happened about 70% of the time. About 70% of people released from prison return within three years, and the majority of those who return in some states do so in a matter of months. Because the challenges associated with mere survival on the outside are so immense. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, first, I think those of us in the civil rights community and many of us in the faith community have got to acknowledge that we allowed a human rights nightmare to occur on our watch. We did. Many of us have been dedicated to doing good work of all kinds. But somehow, this managed to happen on our watch. And too many of us, myself included, were too quiet for too long. So what do we do now? Well, I don't have the time tonight to be able to explain the racial politics that gave birth to this drug war and to the Get Tough movement and the myriad ways in which politicians from both political parties have exploited our nation's racial divisions and anxieties and exploited real problems in poor communities of color for political gain. And I'm not able, in my short time, to explain all the ways in which the seismic shifts in the U.S. economy, seismic shifts from an agrarian economy to an industrial economy to now a globalized and service-based economy have made black men in particular uniquely vulnerable, no longer needing to pick cotton in the fields or labor in factories. Black men have found themselves suddenly disposable no longer necessary to the functioning of the U.S. economy. But what I can say is that in the years following Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s death, our nation was faced with a choice, a fork in the road. We could continue down the road that Dr. King and Ella Baker and Ann Braden and so many others were traveling. We could choose the path of compassion, inclusion, forgiveness, and hope. Or we could choose a different road, a road more familiar when it comes to matters of race. The road of exclusion, division, punitiveness, and despair. One day I believe historians will look back on the era of mass incarceration and they will say it was right there. Right there at the prison gates that we abandoned Dr. King's dream and veered off the trail he had laid. We took a detour, a tragic U-turn that would result in millions of African Americans permanently locked up and locked out. We have now spent one trillion dollars waging the drug war since it began. Trillion dollars. We're constantly being told there's not enough funds to pay teachers. There's not enough money for jobs programs. There's not enough money for economic investment in the poor communities. But apparently we had a trillion dollars to spend. And those dollars were used not for our collective well-being, but instead those dollars paved the way for the destruction of countless lives, families, and dreams. 
So what do we do? My own view is that nothing short of a major social movement has any hope of ending mass incarceration in the United States.
another cat-like system in America. We've got to be willing to tell these truths in our churches, in our places of worship, in our schools, behind bars, in juvenile detention centers, in reentry centers. We've got to tell this truth so an awakening can truly begin. But of course, just a lot of talk isn't going to be enough. It never has. We've also got to be willing to do the work. And that includes building an underground railroad for people who are released from prison. An underground railroad for people who are genuinely trying to make that true break for freedom. We've got to be willing to open our hearts, open our homes, open our places of worship to people who are turning home from prison, supporting the families of those who have loved ones behind bars who are struggling to survive in this era of mass incarceration. And when I think of building this underground railroad, I think of people like Susan Burton. Susan Burton lives in Los Angeles. And she's what I would call a stone catcher. You know, in the Bible, there's the story, the famous story, of the men who gathered around ready to stone to death woman who had committed adultery. They gathered around her, eager to pillory her for her sin, for her crime. And what did Jesus say? He said, let he who is without sin be the one to cast the first stone. And as each man considered his sins, the stones dropped to the ground. Well, today we are a society that loves to throw stones. And Susan, Susan Burton, she has not simply dropped her own stones. She has run into the fray to catch the stones that are being hurled at others. Today, it's not enough to drop our own stones. We must be willing to catch the stones raining down on others and stand up and disarm those who are throwing them. Susan is doing precisely that. She knows what it's like to be hit by stones. Susan herself cycled in and out of prison for 15 years due to a drug addiction. She succumbed to drug addiction after the Los Angeles Police Department, the LAPD, ran over her five-year-old son in the street. Mm. A police cruiser speeding down the street ran over him, killed her boy. The LAPD offered no apology, no compensation, and Susan fell into a deep, deep depression, deep grief. Now, if Susan had not been impoverished, if she'd been middle or upper middle class, she would have had a good health care plan. She would have qualified for many hours of counseling and therapy. She might have been prescribed good legal drugs that would have helped her cope with her severe depression and her grief. But no, things were different for Susan. She became addicted to crack cocaine. And thus began her odyssey, cycling in and out of prison for 15 years, never offered drug treatment, only a prison cell. And every time she was released, she was pushed back out onto the street homeless unable to find work, unable to get a roof over her head, unable even to feed herself. Still consumed by addiction and depression, she soon found herself back in prison again, accepting one plea deal after another. Until finally, by the grace of God, she got access to a private drug treatment facility that not only helped her become clean, but gave her a job. And once she had her own roof over her head, she decided to dedicate the rest of her life to ensure that no other woman would ever have to go through what she went through. And so she began by going down to Skid Row in L.A. and meeting women as they got off the prison bus, carrying nothing but a cardboard box of their belongings. 
you at least these women, strangers to her, and go up to them and say, you can come home with me and sleep on my couch. You don't have to turn to the streets tonight. You'll be safe. Come home with me and sleep on my floor. I'll feed you. I'll help you find a job. Just come home with me. I'll make sure you don't have to sleep on the streets tonight. One by one, she began welcoming these strangers into her home, opening her own Underground Railroad, and now Susan runs five safe homes for women in Los Angeles.
uh, cope with their loss. Mr. Davis, I reached out to Mr. Davis this weekend um, via text message. I tried to call him. I reached out to him via text message, and he responded back. I was just trying to give him encouraging words, letting him know that uh, in the end, God is still in control, that, that uh, continue to pray, continue to be supportive, you know, in, in, in whatever happens. Because at, at the end of the day, a child's loss, uh, no one can, no one set themselves up to lose their child. And when you lose that child, it's a difficult process to, you know, uh, the recovery to it is, is endless. I don't think we'll ever recover from the loss of our child, and I'm sure he won't recover from the loss of his child. No, he just he just thanked me um, and told me that he was still praying for me and my family, and I just assured him that we're praying for him and his family. We're focused on justice, and we want to deal with any negativity or distractions. Um, I'm just honored. It, it just... You know, I just want to thank uh, Detroit for the support that they have given for signing the petition, for the prayers, uh, for the Facebook, Twitter. Um, you know, it's a lot of people that support us here, and we just want to say thank you. Me personally, I think uh, legislation needs to take. I mean, it, it, that, that is precedent because um, just to say that you're in fear of your life and you, you don't know the individual whose life you're taking um, and just to use use you with spirit of your life and you're standing your ground against harmless uh unarmed kids. It's, it's, so it's the message that we're sending is that it's okay to do that and it's not. We need to deal with the mentality that's pervasive
and an attitude um, of sheer punitiveness rather than care and concern, uh, we've managed to embark on a prison building boom unprecedented in world history, locking up and then permanently locking out millions of folks who are then stripped of the right to vote, denied the right to serve on juries, and legally discriminated against uh, in employment, housing, access to education, and basic public benefits. The same mentality um, that led to the death of Trayvon Martin, which is viewing certain people as inherently a problem and dangerous, um, is the same mentality um, that has led to the prison building boom um, and a lock them up and throw them to see attitude um, that has left millions of people um, back in and undercast, um, even as we uh, celebrate the re-election of our first black president. I think for people who are currently in law enforcement, the time has come to seek an act of courage, to tell the truth about how broken the system is and how it does not actually serve uh, the goals of crime prevention um, and control. That we have embarked on a war, a drug war, uh, that is targeted uh, primarily and in some cases exclusively for folks of color, even though studies have consistently shown now for decades that people of color are no more likely to export sell illegal drugs than whites. We've incarcerated people at extraordinarily disproportionate, people of color at extraordinarily disproportionate rates. And yet in those cities and communities where incarceration rates are the highest, uh, crime rates have not fallen. Um, the lock them up, throw them the attitude has not worked. What we need to do is invest in education and job creation in our poorest communities rather than invest in a prison building boom. And for too long, um, too many law enforcement officials have been quiet, silent, but I'm encouraged um, by the growing numbers of police chiefs around the country, uh, prosecutors, as well as many former law enforcement officials who are saying enough is enough. Um, it's time for us to end the war-like mentality that we've had um, and uh, stop the different war. Um, I, 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 just, I think that um, being citizens of this country that we have the right, if a, if a child wants to have his music at a certain level, that's his right. It's, it's, it's not my duty to go up to that individual and tell him to turn his music down. That's his vehicle. That's his personal property. So it, um, if he's, I just feel that if the kids wasn't doing anything illegal, they weren't breaking any laws, uh, it, it was no justification for the individual to go and t to tell him to turn down his music. And, and I'll say a point to that. It really does talk about the mentality of this stand-your-ground law. It, it almost encourages vigilantism versus calling the police to say, okay, we got laws for North ordinance that let the police handle it. You start trying to take the law into your own hands. And when you got a gun, it makes you feel bolder about, I'm going to make you do something. And that's just the wrong message to send. When Mr. Martin says it is a legislative problem, this standard ground law, since it's been in its inception, haven't done anything to deter the number of homicides in our state of Florida. In fact, uh, as Ms. Alexander kind of suggests in the book, there's no correlation between these get-tough laws 
and the decline of crime or homicide. And the worst thing is just the message it sends. It sends a terrible message that when you see somebody like a Marissa Alexander say she was standing her ground, it doesn't work for her. In Arkansas, Ernest Hoskins, 21-year-old black male, shot by his 34-year-old boss, killed in cold blood, a gun collector. The police let him come home and sleep in his bed and don't arrest him for uh, almost two weeks until his widow, his 24-year-old widow and his mother, cry out and get us involved to tell the media that he shot my husband, my son, in cold blood and Nobody has arrested him. You had a gun, a confession, and three eyewitnesses. And I dare say, until we got involved, they were not going to arrest this killer. And that's the problem, that these laws send these messages for people to be vigilantes and say you won't be held accountable. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you all. Well, what I heard today from everyone that was in attendance that, you know, this is a pervasive problem. This problem doesn't exist. And uh, if we don't have uh, police officers and law enforcement uh, and parents all working together. Um, but the problem that I think I heard uh, is that this really is a legislative problem, that what it comes down to is the stand your, gro stand your ground law, which needs to be repealed, needs to be revisited, that it's just not working. It's not helping at all, and for anyone to defend it, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's actually shameless. So um, there's really not uh, too much more that we can say about that in general. What I saw from the Martins, however, both uh, parents are very, very distraught. It certainly is not an act um, to see the grieving on their face, to see their impression and feelings, about the questions that are being asked and even being put in this position. I think what we heard was that they're very upset about having to be the people who are on tour who are responding to this on a continuous enough basis. It needs to be addressed, and they are hurting not only for their son being lost, and you heard them say they're not even celebrating Christmas um, or even looking forward to it, but that they really want to uh, um, say to families and parents of teenage boys out there, that, uh, you know what, you got to be careful. You can't just go around thinking that everything is going to be okay, and you got to think twice. And uh, you heard Michelle Alexander say that she believes that we're going backwards, backwards to a time where, um, you know, slavery and uh, so forth were really pervasive. But that immediate time when we first came out of slavery and we, had, we, we couldn't look people in the eye and we couldn't uh, talk, uh, you know, sassy, as they say, uh, back to, to, to people uh, who were white. Um, so this was a significant uh, press conference. Uh, we're looking for more uh, on our next show, and we certainly will bring that to you. Well, I want to thank you for everything that you're doing, and we're looking forward to hearing um, her uh, her uh, speech live at this event. Uh, could you just tell everybody where this event is taking place? Uh, Leslie? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. What's your name? Okay, just tell everybody where we are, where you're located. I'm, gonna... I'm standing right next to David. She's doing a recording right now. So let me um, – we're broadcasting right here live from downtown Detroit, Michigan, where we just got finished talking to the parents of Trayvon Martin, as well as Michelle Alexander, the author of the new Jim Crow, or the Jim Crow Laws. So uh, we want to make sure that uh, you stay tuned with us and continue to listen to Leslie uh, this show as we move forward with more and more from
dramatic uh, trend that's taking place in our country. I'm Ed Foxworth from Detroit, Michigan. Thank you so much. We'll be in, in touch. Okay, I'm gonna call you. So you're gonna call me back for another number, or you want to do this number? Um, stay. Um, call me back on this number, and I'll text you the other number as well. You're texting me the other number. Right. So call you, you back um, on this one too. Okay. Right. I'll text you both. All right. Numbers. Hold on. Okay. Hold on one sec. All right. Hello, Leslie. Yes, David. Okay, I was here. Uh, I didn't know you had a direct. And, uh, okay, yes, could, David. It, it was I'm awesome. Gonna, um, it was awesome. Was, I, okay, wh- why do you think it was awesome? Why? Because I could see and feel the pain, the injustice that was done to Trayvon Martin and what that did to his parents. They've been, they, they still compose, and they're still showing a sense of, of, uh, of respect, but they still have a lot of pain. They want justice. And uh, they, the reporters try to castigate some negativism about money raised and using it, and they didn't want to deal with that. They were speaking about the injustice not only to Trayvon Martin, but it's a uh, it's a blueprint that's been going on for a long time. We're not moving forward. Actually, we're moving back. And uh, Michelle uh, Alexander answered those questions very uh, timely and very relevant to what's going on today, how uh, society the law enforcement and justice, to a large degree, has turned their backs on African-American youth, and the attitude must change if things want Great. to get better. I want to thank you, David. Um, I want you to call back into the show um, immediately following uh, the speech by Ms. Alexander, and we'll talk, okay? Thank you for uh, call back uh, today. helping me you want out. Me to call back. Yes, call back right after, right after um, her speech. Okay, will do. All right, it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.